Bet365 sponsors the Going Up, Going Down podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It has got everything you'll ever need to bet on sport. There are some huge championship games this weekend. West Bromwich Albion versus Nottingham Forest, Leeds versus Bristol City, to name just two. Fancy Leeds to hold to their faltering run of form? Will Forest put midweek disappointment behind them to close in on the baggies? With Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and many more to your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hi, hello, thanks for tuning in to this week's Going Up, Going Down, an EFL podcast brought to you by The Athletic. It's been such a busy week in the EFL with a full slate of midweek fixtures, but as always, we've gathered ourselves for the usual previews, stories and hot takes all on the way in this episode. I'm Ali Maxwell and with me is George Ellick, the Rudy Justed to my Jordan Rhodes. Not many <laughs> strike partners, both scoring 20 plus goals in a league season. If only I could head the ball. Uh, all the Athletics podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to Athletics subscribers. You can sign up, you should sign up now and get a 40% discount by using the promo code EFLPOD. All of the best ad-free written content, brilliant, brilliant podcasts as well. So if you haven't subscribed already, EFLPOD is your promo code. So first up, as ever, we are going to take you through our games of the weekend, starting the championship, one in League One and then one in League Two as well. Worth pointing out here when we're going through what we're going to talk about, uh, it's become quite obvious that the same teams stay at the top of the table. So it's quite hard to make sure we don't repeat ourselves. So we've maybe... Would you say this is sort of hipster week for match previews? Possibly. And I think the next couple might be as well. So we're not repeating ourselves. Um, But I'm going to kick off in the championship in a game between 6th and 11th. Preston play Millwall. Uh, Preston currently on 53 points, Millwall on 46. And I might... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if people are asking why this is such a big game. And there's been so much conversation about the top end of the championship that without really realising, there's suddenly a massive top six race on as well. Quickly looking through the championship table, you have West Brom in, uh, in top on 62 points, six points clear of Leeds on 56. So Leeds 56, then Fulham 56, Brentford 54, Forest 54, Preston 53, Bristol City 53, Cardiff 49, Blackburn and Swansea both 47, and then Millwall on 46. So you've got a playoff race that basically covers Leeds in second down to Millwall in in 11th. Bristol City currently in seventh place, just three points off the automatic promotion place. So I think this one's important for two reasons. In terms of of the home side in Preston, this is their a home game where they need to win it in order to, to maintain their spot in, in the top six. For Millwall, it's a game they have to win really if they're going to challenge for those playoff places as they will hope. And Preston come into this in a really, really good run of form. They beat Stoke uh, midweek 2-0. It was possibly a bit fortunate. The game of Stoke definitely dominated the first half at least. Uh, and then Preston scored twice in the second half to win it. But that means... They are currently second in the six-game form table in the championship with 14 points. Only Bristol City have more than them as well. And it feels a a bit like they're back to where they were at the start of the season, where uh, 
even in a good run of form, the games, they don't feel like they're dominating games, but they seem to come out on the right side of those results. And there's merit to that as well. Certainly. And there's been one key difference to the, the dip in form we saw maybe at the turn of the year to now, and that is Daniel Johnson. Uh, he will get headlines for, in my opinion, probably the wrong reasons. He scored 10 goals this season and got five assists. Most of those goals have been penalties. So that's not really where his influence is so crucial. But he is a player who plays alongside uh, Pearson and Brown in, in midfield. And that's a really nicely balanced midfield three. He's very athletic. He's very good on the ball. He's very tenacious off the ball. And he may not be the biggest or strongest combative midfielder, but in terms of the, the distance he covers and what he can do on the ball when he gets on it, he is very, very effective. Interesting that you flagged him up because at different points, certainly since we've been covering Preston, we've spoken a lot about Ben Pearson. We've spoken a lot about Alan Brown, uh, definitely last season. But Johnson, the one for you that stands out at the moment. Well, especially because of the record with him in and out of the side recently. In those uh, six weeks that he missed, he missed eight games. He won sorry, Preston won just two of those games. They lost three. They didn't score in four of them. Since he's been back, they've played five games, one, four, drawn one. So unbeaten in that time and scored 10. So he's made a massive difference returning to the side. It gives them just a bit more balance as well. There's no doubt that what this Preston side is lacking is a goal scorer, is a striker. Sean Maguire plays up top at the moment. He's basically just a nuisance uh, and not much else. He's not, you know, he's not going to score many goals. He reminds me a bit of Shane Long in the way he goes about his business. But Barkhausen on the right-hand side is a goal threat. He's scored in both of his last two games. Scott Sinclair's come in as well. He'd expect to improve them too. So Preston coming into this one in rude health, you have to say, and and probably expecting another win. But for Millwall, they've taken just two points in their last four games after what was such a good run after Gary Rowett came in. But it's worth noticing that in those four games, they have played all of the top three. They've played Leeds, they've played West Brom and they've played Fulham. Fulham was the most recent game last night and probably the best performance of those four games, uh, especially in the first half an hour, they pressed Fulham to an extent that I didn't really know they were capable of. They wouldn't let Fulham get control of the ball at all. Uh, they missed a penalty through Jed Wallace at one all, so they may feel aggrieved as to not have taken more from the game. But worth pointing out as well that their goal should not have stood. Um, Tom Bradshaw was about five yards offside uh, and possibly exposing an over-reliance on Jed Wallace, uh, who, you know, his form under Rowett, caused many to predict that he would be getting a move to the Premier League in January. That didn't happen. Uh, but the goal against Fulham was their only goal in three games. Wallace, a player who throughout his career has, has never been prolific, always been a, a big threat. And so maybe kind of relying on, on someone like that to be your main source of goals was never going to work. But it's worth pointing out here that if Millwall can get something out of this game, their fixtures from here on in are pretty much as simple as anyone in the top 11 or 12. Their away games are against Wigan, Forest, Barnsley, Hull, Charlton and QPR. So Forest, the only team there that you'd be really concerned about. And then Bristol City is the only home game they've got left against a top seven club too. So despite the poor run of form and despite somewhat falling out of the race for the top six, this feels like a, a bit of a pivotal match for, for Gary Rowett and his side. And if they can get a win here, not only will, will they be stopping a team who they're trying to overtake, but they will also be putting themselves right back amongst it. So in terms of a prediction, I think the points are probably going to be shared. I'm not convinced that Preston are playing as well as their form suggests, although no doubt Johnson's return to the side uh, has definitely improved them. And for Millwall, no need to panic. Uh, they weren't particularly good against West Brom on Sunday, but a return to a decent level of performance against Fulham and another 
game like that should see them at least get something from it. So sitting on the fence a bit, but I do think this is a big game. And after we see what happens here, we're going to have a better understanding of what's going on in the top six of the championship. It's interesting to me just looking at the home and away league tables in the championship this season, as you've discussed, that Preston is still top of the the home league table this season, 10 wins uh, from 16 games. But you know, there's only three points between Preston with the best home record and Blackburn in six. So there's very little between that. And in the away table, it's West Brom, who are seven clear of Leeds with the best away record in the league. So it, it feels like having a really good home record doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be challenging at the top. It's those teams who can really do the business away from home that, that tend to see themselves towards the top end of the table. Preston very much mid-table in terms of away form uh, and Millwall even lower, the 15th best record. Uh, I want to talk about Gillingham and Doncaster in League One. Again, maybe a, a bit of a hipster's choice, but I think we've done Peterborough, we've done Rotherham, we've done Sunderland and Portsmouth as well. So, uh, And I think Oxford have been covered plenty over the last few years on our various uh, EFL pods but uh, it's two teams in good form which was one thing that stood out and then I suppose I might be stretching but two teams with a chance albeit a small one of reaching the playoffs Doncaster are eighth which is only two points off the playoffs Gillingham are 11th uh, seven points off I'll start with Jills because uh, we were at the Brentford Leeds game on Tuesday we were staying abreast of the other results as they came in in the EFL and Gillingham nicked a late winner at Blackpool 90th plus four or five a Hanlon header sending the Gills fans into ecstasy Uh, and you said to me Gills are going to be one to look out for next season aren't they And, and I sort of nodded I agreed because they're in really good form they're unbeaten in 12 which is the longest unbeaten run currently in the EFL the problem they've had is uh, seven draws out of those 12 and just five wins so that's why they've not flown up towards the playoff places but they're such a hard team to beat they've actually lost fewer league games than Rotherham this season Rotherham who are top of the division and have 13 points more than them so you can see it's it's turning draws into wins that's been Gillingham's big issue but you can see why they don't lose many games the the back five has become more and more formidable throughout the season Steve Evans teams you would always expect to be hard to break down and this is no different Jack Bonham in goal who they picked up uh, after release by Brentford last season who's a fantastic shot stopper I think there's been question marks about whether he's good enough in terms of distribution to play you know for a team like Brentford in the championship or potentially at that level but as a shot stopper he's right up there certainly in league one terms and then uh, an experienced right back in Barry Fuller uh, with Ema the captain inside him and Jack Tucker who has emerged from the academy this season and made that centre-back spot his own which is a serious effort uh, for a a 20-year-old he's pushed my favourite of their players, Connor Ogilvie, out to left-back. Ogilvie came through at Spurs. He's a, a, a left-footed central defender or a left-back. He's got real quality in his left foot, but he's a big guy as well. He can handle himself, and uh, it's just a really solid back five. Um, they've got better as a goal threat, albeit still not one of the top teams in the division, and that's kind of what's holding them back. Well, I was going to say that we always... I mean, you, you talk about associating... Steve Evans with a solid defence and tough to break down. I associate him with getting strikers to score goals. Mm. And he's got a record of that throughout his career. And we're yet to really necessarily see it. Um, But we did see in January, he brought in uh, Jordan Roberts uh, from Ipswich, Jordan Graham as well, and Johnny Kinde. 
are we get, are we set to see Johnny Kinde profiting um, from the Steve Evans magic? I think so. I look, he's he's clearly more of a goal threat than Mikel Mandron, who was really their only striker uh, to start the season for the first half of the campaign. Uh, certainly in the, in that sort of more of a target man mould anyway. And and Akinde looks to suit this team well. He's already had a pretty big impact, I would say. Uh, and I think that he improves this team to the extent where I think they'll reach the playoffs. No, I think a seven point gap is probably too big a gap for a team that that struggles to to turn draws into wins like this. But I think they're an interesting team. And as you say, certainly one that we'll keep an eye on uh, over the summer for a potential playoff push or more next season. Uh, Doncaster could be one for this season. As I said, only two points off eighth. The thing that's really holding me back here is because of this weird schedule in League One this season that's been completely knocked off balance, blown off course to what you'd normally expect. Donny have played 18 home league games and 12 away. So they've got 14 games left and 10 of them are away from home. Now, basically, A, they're not a particularly good team away from home. B, no one is really. So you can't expect them to pick up enough points, I don't think, to close that gap on the teams above them. Uh, Also, their inconsistency has held them back all season. They've had some good results and they tend to be followed up by poor performances. That's something that Darren Moore will, will need to sort out going forward. But I really like their style of play. There's been a few examples in the last month or two of watching Doncaster play, watching their highlights and really understanding how they're looking to play. It's an attractive attacking style, uh, plenty of, of quick passing and good movement. And it's, it's encouraging for me. They've scored some lovely goals recently. It starts at the base of midfield with Ben Whiteman, who's a player I love, uh, and Sheaf as well next to him, who can both play the ball forward. Good quality in terms of passing. Coppinger's got that um, just wonderful vision that's that's you know still doing it age 38, I think he is. Um, an, an amazing assist on the weekend and, and a player that we love. And pace up top. They also added a striker in January, uh, Fajiri Okunabire, from Shrewsbury and, and he's already in the goals too already like Akinde so uh, he's looking like a good addition I think for Donny there's two players I think will definitely play at a higher level Ben Whiteman 23 year old at the base of midfield does everything he's probably their best passer he's uh, a threat from range he can do the dirty work as well and then Tom Anderson who's a centre-back proper old school central defender, um, you know, no frills, but you can see him having a good championship career, I think. Um, it's an interesting game. I am going to lean towards Gillingham because they are strong at home and Donny less good away from home. I think Gillingham win this one by one goal. So a 1-0 or a 2-1, let's go for that. have to feel so sorry for Doncaster fans that they were set to sign Adam Ida on loan from Norwich and then he went and scored an FA Cup hat-trick. And you have to feel if they had that firepower in their team, they would probably be getting a little bit closer to the playoffs than they might do this season. Uh, into, Into League Two, and I was trying to work out which game to do and then I reminded myself that this podcast is a going up going down podcast so obviously had to be Macclesfield against Exeter one side very much on the way up and the other one very much on the way down Macclesfield uh, are the hosts here and they lost a very big game against Morecambe on Saturday and that sees them drop for the first time this season down into 23rd position which of course would normally be the relegation zone but due to uh, Berry's expulsion from the league only one team goes down from League 2 at the moment and they are seven points clear of that team in Stevenage 
But the caveat, as we spoke about a couple of weeks on this podcast, is with Macclesfield, they have a four-point suspended points deduction after their 6.1 that was implemented, which means that every point matters here because we have no idea if that's going to be implemented. There's been no suggestion whether it will be or won't be. They failed to play a game against uh, Plymouth uh, after it was called off for safety fears around the stadium. And... uh, it's basically anyone's guess as to whether or not that's going to be implemented. So for the time being, Macclesfield have to assume they are set for further sanctions. If that is the case, that seven points could be three points. It could be less than three points. Every game now for, for them is so, so important. Uh, new manager Mark Kennedy is really up against it as well. No one is blaming him, but they are winless in four. Since speaking about it on this podcast in the In Focus section, they lost three players in um, Osadebi, Vassell and Welch Hayes, who all had their contracts terminated after appealing to the to the EFL. So things at Macclesfield continuing to get worse on the pitch. No resolution apparent off the pitch either. So they come into this game in a in a pretty difficult position where they position where they do not know how close they are to the relegation zone and as such every game for Macclesfield is so important and they're hosting a side Nexeter who had a tricky run of fixtures they were winless in three uh, and since then would have been pretty happy to see home games against Stevenage and Oldham coming up which they won 2-1 and 5-1 Matt Taylor continuing to do a brilliant job there and they are just three points behind leaders Swindon with a game in hand so still not only in the mix for automatic promotion in third but also looking to win the league and just wanted to point out before because we've spoken about Exeter a fair bit and you know the likes of Nicky Law and Aaron Martin, key players who are maybe senior pros, but very slowly and without much kind of fanfare, Taylor is building a really strong young spine to this team. Randall Williams is the one we have spoken about, uh, a right winger who can play as a right wing back. Very, very creative, very good on the ball and, uh, and a goal threat as well. He's 23 years old. You've got Matt Jay as well, who plays as a number 10, also 23. Jack Sparks on the left-hand side is 19. Archie Collins in centre midfield is 20. These are guys who are playing week in, week out at the moment for Exeter, a team who are punching. They're known for it, aren't they, Exeter? Bringing through players like Ethan Ampadu, Ollie Watkins, Ollie Watkins as well. And, and these are guys who are performing. You know, you talk about those two players who came through at slightly different times and, and were kind of were the gem of the teams at that time but to have four players performing at that level for a side looking to get promoted into League One is really impressive and as well with a rookie manager so if you're going to be looking at this one those are the players to look out for unsurprisingly I'm going to side uh, with Exeter here I think they should win this pretty comfortably and if they do then Macclesfield will have to continue hoping that Graham Wesley and Stevenage continue to lose their games because as I mentioned that seven point gap is there at the moment but uh yeah, it, it may not be for too much longer. Yeah, really tricky situation ongoing at Macclesfield. Uh, we, we sort of spoke about how we felt the need to keep talking about it because there seems to be no immediate resolution in sight and there's going to be some issues on the horizon if nothing gets sorted anytime soon. <laughs> Straight from weekend preview into a section I'm very excited about. George's hot take. This is the hot take debate. Last week, I railed against the the very notion of clubs being a big club or a huge club or a massive club. The week before, George told me that he thought Bristol City were bad. Uh, What are you saying this week, George? Yeah, this is a big topic and I need to, there's so much to say. I need to be very careful how I go about it. But my hot take is the notion that the table doesn't lie is 
stupid and fundamentally flawed. And it frustrates me a lot how often you or I will, will talk about a side or talk about a team, either positively or negatively. And as if it's just this binary, we will get told in no uncertain terms, have a look at the league table, the table doesn't lie. And that, of course, in my opinion, doesn't make sense, especially, and I know this is maybe an issue with the whole of football, but this is especially true in the EFL, where we often hear it told to us, we often say it, especially in the championship, anyone can be anyone. That is, that's kind of the tagline for these leagues. And it is, of course, true. You only have to look at what happened with Nottingham Forest uh, just on the weekend. Having beaten Leeds United comfortably, they go and lose to Charlton. So this notion that every team playing each other once, sorry, every team playing each other twice, once at home, once away from home, will give us an accurate representation of the strongest teams in order is, of course, absurd. You look at other sports around the globe. Baseball has 162 games in a season. Basketball has 82 games in a season. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't use the three-point system or the, or the one for, you know, three points for a win, one point for a draw system. All that does is give us, at the end of the season, an idea of who goes up and who goes down. But to take that as a binary list of the teams in order of their strength and weaknesses just is incorrect. And there are a few reasons for that, of course. Not only have you got the issue where, as I say, there aren't very many games and a lot of things can happen twice. If you took a fixture such as Leeds against Nottingham Forest and you played that game 50 times and then the winner, whoever came out on top of those 50 times, got three points and the loser got naught points and you organised a, a, a table like that, do you think the table would look the same at the end of 46 games as it would to that? Absolutely not. You then have circumstantial reasons why that isn't the case. At the beginning of this season, you had lots of fans in League One livid, absolutely livid that Bolton would have a weaker team for the first few weeks of the season to compare to the rest of the season. It was unfair, apparently. This happens on a smaller scale throughout every single season in the whole of world football. You have sides who are weaker or stronger due, due to circumstances beyond their control genuinely every single week. You know, I'm an Oxford fan. At the moment, we have nine games in February on the back of a cup run and 120 minutes against a Premier League team. Teams playing us now are playing a much weaker team than they played four weeks ago. That's how it works out. So the fixture list and fixture congestion makes a, a massive, massive difference. We also have the elephant in the room which is of course the performance data and you know there's much more to performance data than just expected goals but that is of course one way that you can look at a team's strengths and weaknesses over the course of the season now I'm not here telling you that after a 46 game season the xg ratio table is a better metric to show you who's better or worse than the, than the, than the league table but what we have to understand is there's probably a happy medium if we look back to the very, for not the top 20 at least, it was a very dramatic season, the 2016-17 season, where Reading got to within a kick of getting promotion to the Premier League. Yapstam. Yapstam's Reading. In that season, they were probably ranked about 18th or 17th in the championship based on expected goals. So quantifying the strength of their chances compared to the opposition on a week-by-week -week basis. They finished the season fourth or fifth, I believe. Are they the 17th best team in the league? Probably not. Are they the fifth best team in the league? Probably not. There's a happy medium, but variants went their way over the course of the 46 games and they ended up in that position. Had that season gone on longer and the performance levels were the same, they would have fallen, fallen away. And that was shown in what happened the season later, which ended in the Yapstam sacking, where they started the season continuing to play the same football. The numbers didn't change. They just got worse. And this happens pretty regularly. With, Brent, with Brentford, it's a constant theme the other way. They are a side who consistently post 
numbers be- uh, numbers better than where they end up. We saw them last season finish in, in 11th position and often it's goal difference can be an interesting way of also measuring those performances as well. They had plus 14 that year. We saw it with Plymouth in 17-18 as well where they started the season very, very poorly. They went on an extraordinary run and finished 7th just outside the playoffs with a goal difference of minus 1. All the performance data had them down as being much poorer than that. Mansfield last season in League 2. All metrics said they were the best team in the league. They finished 4th. They ended up uh, getting knocked out in the playoffs. Now, again, I'm not saying that these are better measures, but there has to be an understanding amongst football fans that the if you played these seasons in the same conditions between the same same teams, season on season, the 1-24s to would not be the same every time. And therefore, the binary nature that we all approach football or that, we, that some people think it's unarguable to say that the, the table lies is just fundamentally flawed. I think... A lot of this comes down to what we do and what we are trying to do uh, in our originally self-defined roles as <laughs> talkers about EFL football. And that's not necessarily just to say, these were the results, this is the league table, isn't that team amazing, isn't that team terrible, based on that. But we've always tried to look a little bit deeper, haven't we, and try and be quite predictive with how we, we review things. And I guess... A big difference here, George, is the the difference in perspective between I us think, trying to do that and fans but I think listening. A, because I would say to you, why should they care? Well, I agree with that. I, I definitely agree with that. But if you are a Forest fan right now or a Bristol City fan, and I'm here saying to you, I don't think you are necessarily the fourth best team in the league. Bristol City, I don't think you are necessarily the sixth or seventh best team in the league. You are right. Why does that matter? And you can accept that as a fan and say, like, you're probably right, but we're there. And if we finish there, we're going to go up. So who cares? I remember when um, Northampton and Oxford finished first and second in League Two. Chris Wilder was manager of Northampton. Michael Appleton was manager of Oxford. And after the last game of the season, Appleton said, was, you know, as everyone knows, we're the best team in this league. Chris Wilder, it's fair to say, did not like that and, uh, and sent a message to Appleton on the open bus, uh, on the open, uh, bus uh, parade afterwards. It's just something that annoys me, as with all these things. I'm sure there are people out there who cannot process the idea that the table can lie. But in my opinion, it is, it, you know, it, it's the way that we work out who wins a competition. It is not a way of ordering the best for the best team to the worst. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, you go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, and then you fill in a style quiz. Now, this is quite the experience and very valuable if you do it well. You tell Stitch Fix all about your personal style, your budget, size and shape, all of those sorts of things. And after that, a personal stylist will send you five items of clothing, each hand-picked for you from their selection of 100 brands, which include established names and also emerging designers, exclusive brands that you won't find anywhere else. They send everything to you. You try it on at home and match it with other things in your wardrobe. You then buy what you love and send back the rest. So it really is try before you buy and they make it so easy for you. I did the style quiz. It took me five to ten minutes. I had to work out some of my measurements, which post-Christmas were bit bigger than I wanted but you've got to be honest and it is worth being honest and then they send you these clothes you don't buy anything until you've actually tried it on you keep what you love pay for that send back the rest 
Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co.uk forward slash athletic. So after my rant, I have calmed down a little bit. I'm looking forward to having a lot of people more than usual telling me that the table doesn't lie in the future. Uh, But now we get on to Not The Back page where we look to... Uh, just shed some light, I guess, on some of the stories in the EFL that may not be widely reported. And Ali, you, you may have called this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but there's been a managerial casualty in League One. Yeah, we had a, a big old look at Blackpool, didn't we, the other week in the In Focus section. Uh, it, was, it wasn't just about their results and performances this season. It was more about the club as a whole and how they've moved on from the Oyston ownership fiasco uh, with the new owner, Simon Sadler, and how he's gone about things. Simon Grayson, uh, the manager, they started the season very well, but he's lost his job this week after a defeat at home to Gillingham that gave them a form table of one win, two draws and seven defeats in their last 10. Now, given that they started the season well and looked like, even around Christmas time, a playoff contender, the way that they've dropped down the league has understandably had fans pretty furious. And in the end, Grayson's paid for it with his job. What's kind of interesting is one of the things I noted on that focus section is that they signed 10 players in January. So, that made it look like he was being backed hugely by the owner because, you know, signings like that, especially in January, they are a statement that you trust your manager to, to, to get things right. And only two weeks later, Grayson has left the club. Now, the fans, I think it's fair to say almost to a person, are pretty happy. It wasn't just the results, but the fairly grim nature of, of the football. Now, football is... Uh, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it was it was pretty direct stuff. And just in terms of chance creation, they really have been miserable in the last few months. So there's a new manager to hire. Currently, the interim manager is David Dunn, which is brilliant. I think we all remember. Has he, has he stood on the ball yet? He he hasn't stood on the ball. That was the, that was the famous. I, I do feel bad for David Dunn. He's best known for a chicken advert at Blackburn and for falling over when attempting a Rabona. And I, I just feel a bit bad because he was a good player. Anyway, he's their interim manager. The favourite currently is Nathan Jones, which surely would be a hell of a, an appointment for Blackpool. Paul Heckingbottom's second favourite. And then a, a quite a popular choice amongst fans would be amongst fans would be Ian Evert, who was a key part of their rise up the leagues at centre-back under Ian Holloway, is now doing a fantastic job at the top of the National League with Barrow. So he's one to keep an eye on, uh, Nathan Jones, the favourite. Any other headlines from this week that people might have missed? Yeah, there's a new manager in at Scunthorpe. They may have lost the battle of the caretakers with Mark Bonner's Cambridge 2-0, but Russ Wilcox has got the job uh, at least till the end of the season. Uh, You'd think that maybe Scunthorpe would be a bit reticent to do to make the touch an appointment after the, the Nick Dawes appointment didn't end as they'd have hoped and fair to say that all these Scunthorpe fans getting excited about a possible return of former physio manager hero Nigel Adkins hasn't really come off Philosopher. and and some shocking news as well from League One sit down if you are standing up Joey Barton received a second red card as a manager in six weeks for foul and abusive language towards a referee in the 94th minute of a game where Ched Evans was also sent off for an elbow. So, um, yeah, they won the game 1-0. So, happy days all round at Fleetwood. 
Okay, now on to the in-focus section. Something a little different this week compared to previous weeks is that we are merging the club in-focus and the fan-focus section. So now we are going even more in-depth, if anything, on whoever we choose to do in-focus. This week, it's Nottingham Forest. Now, it's been a hell of a week for Forest and for their fans because on Saturday evening they beat Leeds at a rocking city ground 2-0 winners uh, and then they followed up with a home defeat against Charlton so uh, it's been quite the week I've asked the fans some questions which I'll, I'll, I'll run you through where they're at and how their heart rate is doing what their predictions are from now on to the rest of the season but George I wanted to get your take on Nottingham Forest delving a little bit deeper into them where you're at with Forest at the moment. If I had to use a word to describe Nottingham Forest, it would probably be curious. It's been a, they're, they're a funny old side. Now, I mean that with no disrespect at all, but beating Leeds 2-0 in a dominant display and then losing 1-0 at home to Charlton a couple of days later kind of sums it up. And previously they'd beaten Brentford away and then lost to Birmingham. Exactly. Um, so, I, I mean, I wanted to start off with Sabri Lamucci because... We all know that he's the current Forest boss, but I, I guess not many of us know a great deal about him as a you know as a man and as and as a manager. And he is someone who's also had quite a curious career so far. He was a very good player. He was capped for France twelve times. He played for Monaco, Parma, Inter, Marseille, and then his first job in management was taking over at the Ivory Coast in two thousand and twelve, just straight into uh, national team management. Um, at Ivory Coast he took them to Brazil in 2014 they didn't qualify from their group he then went straight and had three years at in, uh, managing in Qatar before turning up in Ligue 1 for Rennes in 2017 in, in November and led them on a, on a merry run to fifth place and into the Europa League the second season didn't start as well and he was sacked in December and then six months later he turns up at Nottingham Forest so you've got a manager who's taken a side in a top five league in Europe to Europe you've got a guy who's managed in the World Cup but it's hard to really say he's achieved much in the game so far but immediately the recruitment this summer well now looking back it was along the same lines as summer before lots of players we hadn't really heard of coming in from the continent but a quick kind of scan through it now there were some duds but they brought in some really really good players Bryce Samba came in from Caen in Ligue 2 and, and he's been a, a keeper who Forest fans are, are very, very keen on. Sam Basau came in from Dynamo Moscow. We'll talk a bit about him in a second. Yuri Ribeiro has been solid at left back from Benfica. And maybe the real find of the lot was, was Thiago Silva, uh, a player who, who came through at Benfica. They brought him in from Fernese, who, uh, where he helped them get back into the Liga Nosh. So not a player who had really, um, you know, caused any headlines in Portugal previously and if you think back to the comparisons that have been made between Forest and Wolves in terms of recruitment um, the players that they have brought in in the past the likes of Michel Carvalho Silva is definitely of a not of such a high billing but at the age of 26 have played a lot of football down in the lower leagues in Portugal and he's someone who's been very impressive also worth looking at, at Sam Yamiobi who was brought in by Martin O'Neill before he was sacked on a free it looked like a signing that didn't really make any sense but he's been a really really key player for them on the left hand side and then coupled with a couple of guys who've been there for, for a few seasons in Matty Cash at right back a 22 year old flying fullback who can play a range of positions and uh, was apparently on, on AC Milan's radar for £10 million before they uh, instead went for Anthony Robinson at Wigan. Would be would love to speak to the head of recruitment about what they were looking for there. Uh, and then Lewis Graben, of course, leads the line. So there is 
a really key core to this side. Joe Lolly, though, is the absolute star of this team. And that is the important thing. If you haven't read Stuart James's piece on Joe Lolly, his interview with him on The Athletic this week, then I recommend you do so now. Um, I read through the comments yesterday. There are about 55 of them and half of them say the words, this is why I subscribe to The Athletic. And so if you don't subscribe to The Athletic and you want to know why you should, sign up for the free trial and, and read that piece because it talks a lot about football. He's an interesting guy. He's a great player. And it's just the kind of content that you maybe don't normally uh, get in, uh, in football publications. But he's a player who is so positive on the ball. He got 11 goals and 11 assists last season, seven goals and six assists so far this time around. And it just—it does feel like this Forest side, maybe the biggest strength they have is they have such a settled first 11. I can't really think of any sides who've started um, the season with the same team and formation 19 times already. Samba in goal, Cash at right back, Figueredo and Worrell centre-backs, Ribeiro left-back, Sao and Watson sitting in front of the four, Lolly, Silva and Amiobi playing behind Graben. That is their first 11 and they know that. But... There are some caveats to their good form so far this season. They've played 18 games against teams in the bottom half of the division, winning nine, drawing four, losing five, which is not a good record given that they are currently sitting in, in the playoff places. I mentioned Sal earlier on, the, the player they brought in from, from Dynamo Moscow, and he is an, he's an everything midfielder. He's very, very good at breaking down play. He's very good at recycling possession. And him and Ben Watson playing alongside each other is a nice balance of energy and, and class, I would say. Watson is a very important player as well on the ball. And his impact at the club is so, so important. You're looking at games without Sal. They have taken just 16 points from 14, with him 38 points from 17 games. It just goes to show you how much of a different prospect this team are with him in the team as well. So therefore, maybe looking at the season as a whole, the reason why the form has been so up and down, not even up and down, it's been a case where a different side will turn up from one to the next. It probably depends as to whether or not Sauer's is playing. In terms of the data... It's not so positive. Their XG ratio so far this season is 52.91. That suggests they it's pretty level as to whether or not they are creating better chances than their opposition game to game. It has them in ninth position around the same level as Hull, Cardiff and QPR. The defensive numbers are not so good either. They've conceded the third fewest goals in the league behind Leeds and Brentford. But the XG against for both of those sides is far stronger than Forrest's. So what I would say is that on the balance of play this season, they probably are slightly overperforming. But what they do have is a settled side and a manager who has created a team so comfortable out of possession. Uh, this is, I think, the key to their success so far this season. Is we've seen a massive shift in the, in the championship in the last few seasons where the teams who seem to thrive are those who dominate games, dominate possession, look to play high up the pitch. But in Forest, they're coming up against a side who are so comfortable out of it, very, very happy to sit on the lead, very happy to get back into shape. And that's shown by the wins against Brentford and against Leeds, 1-0 and 2-0. But despite going ahead, they were rarely troubled at all against two sides who are two of the best attacking teams and just two of the best teams in the division so far. So despite there being some concerns uh, around the data side of things, and maybe in terms of just individual player quality, this is a very, very solid side who are basically very good at doing it both ways. They can take the game to you and they can sit off and shut up shop. One thing that I've really enjoyed with Forrest this season, and it's not an easy thing to get right in the modern age, but in terms of fan engagement and fan-led initiatives, uh, they really do stand out in the championship and it helps to create a fantastic atmosphere at the city ground. Don't get me wrong, the manager Lamucci and what he's doing with this squad has helped to inspire the fans, but there's one 
group of fans in particular, one initiative called Forza Garibaldi, who have really helped to transform the match day experience for other fans, uh, the the positive atmosphere supporting the team. And I think, you know, that, that game against Leeds on the weekend, it was absolutely electric atmosphere. And uh, that's a real positive for them at the moment, as is the uh, ambitious redevelopment plans of the main stand, which should improve the city ground, increase its attendance and, and help them to, to build. They're, they're clearly an ambitious club. Uh, the new chairman or the newish chairman, Mr. Maranakis, much more popular than the former chairman in the way that he has invested, not just in uh, ambitious player recruitment, the signings of Joao Carvalho, for example, for over £10 million, but also in the infrastructure of the club uh, and, and some off-field projects. As for the fans, well, we asked the usual sorts of questions. Firstly, how's the heart after a, a crazy week or two? Uh, but also what the current feeling is on, on a likely finish for this squad, automatics or playoffs potentially. Uh, we did ask as well if there if there were any concerns. You mentioned their expected goals. If there were any concerns about you know slightly inferior underlying numbers, and I suppose this kind of comes back to to what you were talking about in your hot take debate as well. Now the first fan, Stuart Broad, England cricketer. Don't get me wrong, he wasn't replying to us, but I did stumble across him saying that he'd rather beat Leeds on a Saturday and lose to Charlton on a Tuesday a hundred times out of a hundred. There was another fan. The one thing I'd say to that is, would he rather lose to Birmingham, beat Leeds, then lose to Charlton and take three points from those three games or, or win the other two? Interesting. You've also got James who said, I would have preferred three points against Charlton with a strong lineup. This is in the context of Lamucci making five changes and them losing that game. And then admitting defeat at West Brom, James would have preferred this coming weekend playing for a draw or something like that. He said that Lamucci underestimated Charlton uh, and that the automatics seem impossible right now. That's kind of where the majority of fans seem to be. Um, automatics going to be tough, especially without the strength in depth that I've mentioned, says Forest Analytics. Also says I'd snap your hand off for the playoffs right now. And there's a general feeling that because they've been so good in games against the top teams, uh, they would fancy themselves in the playoffs. You know, all those intangible things we've spoken about, um, game management, uh, discipline, the, the way that they hold on to leads if they do take the lead. Uh, these are all things that seem to suit playoff football. So, you know, in terms of concerns, uh, well, Samba Sal basically and his fitness seems to be a, a, a huge uh, swing for the fans, really. And also just... In games against these lesser teams, teams who, who play for the draw, basically, happy to let Forrest have the ball. Um, uh, Forrest Analytics, again, says we do have to try and come up with ways to, to be better, to create more against those teams. But generally, not too many concerns and I think a, a happy fan base. Time for EFL Rewind. Last week, I took you to Walsall with me uh, to go and visit a certain Paul Merson. The week before that, we learned about Jermaine Defoe's spell at Bournemouth. Looking forward to hearing what you've got for us now. Yeah, I don't want to be labelled a one-trick pony, but uh, hopefully you all enjoy this story time. Get yourself a glass of warm milk, just settle down, put your comfy slippers on uh, and let me tell you a story. A few months ago on our Twitter account, I asked people about a time where your club has had a player that was just laughably good for the level. And it really captured the imagination. It was brilliant replies flooding in, so many good names being mentioned. I wasn't even asking for someone who necessarily went on to have an incredible career, but just someone who for 
any period of time was like an older brother playing football with his with his younger brother's mates just clearly too good um and one name stood out more than most uh, scarcely believable the first time i saw it uh, and then it came flooding in because i hadn't remembered this somehow this is a, a a player with a european cup to his name four major international tournaments stints at the camp nou and real madrid one of i think still single figure players to play for both the only man to have scored for two nations in the World Cup, Yugoslavia and Croatia, somehow, ludicrously, Robert Prozinecki signed for Pompey, Portsmouth Football Club in 2001, lured to this first division club, now the championship, by owner Milan Mandaric on a reported 15 grand a week. Uh, it's an amazing story and I'm looking forward to talking you through it. Graham Ricks, summed things up. The manager at the time, Graham Ricks. I think Redknapp's involved in some way, potentially director of football type vibe. I haven't quite got to the bottom of a lot of this, but it was down to Mandaric. He was the one that persuaded Prozanecki to sign. Graham Ricks, the manager, said, I was surprised when we got him. He wasn't really someone I'd factored into my plans, uh, which is you can kind of understand. The first thing I want to tell you is that his first away match in English football, the, the first experience he had going away from home was Stockport away, a game in which he scored, but most excitingly when doing this research, a game in which Aaron Wilbraham played for Stockport. Wow. So immediately Wilbraham becomes... Wilbraham is probably about 30. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> immediately Aaron Wilbraham, Wilbrahimovic, becomes right at the top of the list of potential interviewees for us. But also, it's such a weird schedule to start the season, and I can't understand how this happened. Prozanecki plays a friendly for Croatia in Ireland on the 15th of August, which is a Wednesday. And then the season starts on the Saturday, the 18th. You then have the League Cup first round, two more games for Croatia in early September, which is the same international break. Need I remind you, George, that England won 5-1 against Germany in September 2001. And then there's six league games in three weeks between the 8th and 28th of September. I say all this to say, Robert Prozanecki played 14 games in six and a half weeks, all while smoking copious amounts of <laughs> Marlboro Red cigarettes. That is a real theme when you look back on his time. How many there. goals did he score? In the season, he scored nine goals in 33. He set up countless others. And you know who he was setting them up for mostly? Peter Crouch, a very young Peter Crouch, somehow more gangly than I remember him being in his more established Premier League career. Crouch says... I think I scored 19 goals that season and he put pretty much every single one on a plate for me. He didn't speak much, but you knew he understood far more than he was letting on. You could speak to him one-on-one -on -one and he'd answer in perfect English. But as soon as you told him to track back, he'd reply... I don't understand. <laughs> Gary O'Neill, who you mentioned last week because he played with Merson at Walsall, also played alongside Prozanecki for Portsmouth, the poor bloke. He had to do all of his running. He said it was like playing football with your dad, but you couldn't get the ball off him. And this really is a theme. Prozanecki, despite being 33 at the time and a career that was actually blighted by injuries despite the success he did have was still just so unbelievably talented at such a higher level than anyone else in the league uh, a couple of fan quotes uh, he was laughably good in what was a terrible team they came 17th Pompey single-handedly kept us up 
don't think he was trying most of the time and would reportedly have a couple of cigs at half time. That's confirmed by the kit man who said on away trips before the game, he'd have a smoke and either a double or triple espresso while telling me stories about Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, other good things, a fan said he recalled Prozanecki literally turning up at 10 to 3 for a 3 p.m. kickoff, <laughs> smoking as he walked down Frogmore Road with the fans and just took the piss week in, week out. Limvoy Primus, who was there, said we were getting in the tunnel, getting ready to come out for a game against Nottingham Forest. When Marlon Harewood went over to him, he just shook his head and said, mate, you're an absolute legend. No <laughs> and way. And I think that pretty much summed it up. That is lovely. So they started pretty well. Prozanecki was shining. Uh, he scored six goals in four games at one point in January. He's taking all the set pieces, scoring a fair few free kicks. Then there's some sort of meltdown. It's hard to get to the bottom of, of quite how it went so wrong. I think... Graham Ricks managed to lose the dressing room in quite a big way. Um, they lost 4-1 to Orient in the FA Cup. Uh, Orient were in Division 3, two divisions below. Dean Smith, their captain that day, Orient, and Jabo Ibere coming off the bench. <laughs> so Wilbraham and Ibere, still playing in the EFL, uh, would have come up against Prozanecki as youngsters, as did Paul Gascoigne, who was at Burnley that season. Uh, April 2002, you get Gaza and Prozanecki on the same pitch in the second tier of English football. Uh, an amazing story. It's Nothing's blamed on Prozanecki as well, by the way. It's not one of those ones where it's like he came on a massive wage, couldn't be bothered at all, and like really affected everyone in a negative way. Everyone is so positive and just says, like, if it wasn't for him, it would have been so much worse. The only people that didn't enjoy his time at Pompey were Barnsley fans because he tore them to shreds twice. A 4-1 win at Oakwell. And then probably the, the game that summed it up the most, he scored a hat-trick at Fratton Park in a game that was 4-all. They didn't even win uh, in that game. And he was reportedly so frustrated that he was just screaming at everyone. Uh, but if you can, you can watch the highlights of that game, that hat-trick that he scored. And he curls in a free kick for his third goal. There's some great fan shots. And I'm not actually being over the top here. I'm not exaggerating to say... The fans are smiling and like celebrating in that way where you can just see they're so grateful that they're witnessing this. And I think probably everyone listening who supports a club has had this moment with someone or other when you just see a player and it's such a delight that they played for your team. Robert Prozanecki is that guy for Pompey fans. Of course, Merson had a big impact just a year or two later, but I think Prozanecki is the one that they hold really close in their hearts. So that was the year that Robert Prozanecki played for a 17th place Pompey team in the second tier. I mean, fair to say with the other protagonists of this feature, we know what Jermaine Defoe's up to now. We know what Paul Merson's up to now. What is Robert Prozanecki up to? I'm glad you asked because he's obviously quite a big name in Croatia, uh, but he's also carved out a managerial career of sorts. Uh, it's, it's unconventional, I would say. Uh, he started off as an assistant with Zagreb and then with the Croatian national team. Uh, and he had a go with Red Star Belgrade, where, of course, he absolutely starred as a young player when they were a proper, proper team. Um, he's done a spell in Turkey, National League... Uh, not National League. <laughs> the Panorama. <laughs> he, he's done a spell, actually two spells in Turkey with Kayserispor, which is where he is as we record. And in between that, he was with Azerbaijan for three years and with Bosnia uh, from 18, 2018 to 2019. So an interesting career as a manager, not massively successful, but still very much involved with the game. And I think we're all uh, all the better for it. Probably still smoking a lot of Marlboro Reds as well. <laughs> a couple of espressos. 
So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. All of our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to Athletic subscribers. If you haven't subscribed yet, I really, really recommend it. You can sign up now and get a 40% discount by using the promo code EFLPOD. That's E-F-L-P-O-D. That piece I mentioned earlier with Joe Lolly by Stuart James is up there. So much more good EFL content. And every so often, you might even find a piece written by Ali or I. So please do get on it and sign up now.